0: Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes. Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. you that I got my start both creatively and professionally in the theater. I have spent a lot of time on or around stages and a lot of that time has been spent around Shakespeare. Now, there are a lot of very well-founded critiques of the constant need to revive Shakespeare plays, but I think that one thing that I've always found thrilling is the opportunity to see someone, whether that's a performer or a member of the creative team, or even a playwright, take a classic text and turn it into something fresh and new. I mean something different from the glut of remakes and revivals that are on our screens and stages these days. I'm talking about taking the kernel of a story, a story that has survived the test of time in one way or another, whether that's a historical epic or a canonized novel and turning it into something fresh and new and exciting, lensing it through different frames of storytelling, different points of view. There is a particular pleasure to seeing a story that you thought you knew turned inside out or sideways or lopsided or, I don't know, whatever other multi-dimensional direction you want to consider. So today, I figured we would go find two authors who could tell us a little bit firsthand about taking a classic story and turning it into something fresh, new, and different. Our first stop today is West Egg, New York, but it's not quite the West Egg that you're thinking of. And no, I'm not a necromancer. I haven't brought Scott Fitzgerald back to life. Nevo is the author of the acclaimed novellas When the Tiger Came Down the Mountain and The Empress of Salt and Fortune. She's a Hugo Award and Ignite Award finalist and the winner of the Crawford Award. Her latest book is her debut novel, The Chosen and the Beautiful, in which she retells The Great Gatsby from Jordan Baker's perspective. Except in this book, Jordan is a queer Asian adoptee who might have a little bit of magical ability. Oh, and did I mention that Gatsby might have sold his soul to the devil? It's a hell of a thing to take on one of the great American novels. And so that's where we got started with the why and the how.
1: Well, it all started when, you know, in my younger and more tender days, no, no, it's not like that. I was, uh, like every American advanced placement student, I was given the Great Gatsby as a teenager. So, you know, it was, it came along with the whole Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edith Wharton package. But that one actually, but it actually stuck with me, possibly because I nearly got hit by a car in the parking lot shortly after we started it. Uh, So that leaves a mark. It's not meaningful. I was clumsy and that was a a high school parking lot. You know, it's it's like daring death every time you try to leave or or approach school. so I mean, the roots go way back. It's a story that stuck with me. It's a story that I think resonates with teenagers so very well because it's all about these big emotions that you can't control, and I think that's a key part to being a teenager. It's so many big things we can't control. So it's nice to see a reflection of that in a more immediate sense. It came about in 2019 because I was writing a. Uh, I was in the middle of writing a fantasy novel for my for my agent and she asked if I had anything else going on and i sort of just off the top of my head hitched what would eventually become the chosen the beautiful and when i get done with the, like you know that three or four sentence pitch there was a pause and she's like nee i want you to stop writing what you're writing and i want you to write that instead because diana's brilliant and of course she saw the she saw the clock on the wall in terms of wait that that's that's coming out of copyright this can be a thing right there's this wonderful commonality when something is a part of the american canon we have this we all share this ground in common and when you share a story that's i think that's where you can really blow it up and i really want to see other people just blow it up and i mean that in every sense of the word blow it up in the picture sense blow it up in the in the pyrotechnic sense you know i've heard about like vampire greg atsey no one has done the lovecraftian eldritch great gatsby where fame is actually like the deep creeping monster and i really want to read that i can't write it but i want someone to read it someone to write it for me it's american fame as all of these tentacles and 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 it's eldritch and dark and horrible it'd be so good
0: listen listeners (laughs) i i'm claiming it
1: it? stay away
0: (laughs) i like this ethos of go big take these classic stories and run with them how close did you feel like you had to stay Were there things that you felt like, oh, I can't change this, or was everything up for grabs?
1: I think this is one of those things where it really turns out to be the sort of thing where I wanted to stay so close to the story because I love the story. It was, are we allowed to give spoilers? I mean, it literally is about 95, about 100 years old now. Can I, can I give spoilers? I was going to say, we'll go ahead and say yes. Okay, so I think for the way the story to work, I think there's a story where Gatsby lives I think there's a story where Daisy is stronger, and a story where we end up with Nick being a little bit more of someone who makes decisions. But that wasn't what I was doing. I I, I love that arc and the, the the rise and the fall. And I hope that if anyone takes anything from this work, I hope they understand that I love this story very much. It's lived in me for a very long time in a way that few other stories have because you know I got it so young. I mean, the only story that I think compares is. Maybe Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome, which I have strong feelings about and I can't stand it. So, you know, I I try not to go near that one. I think the the joy of The Great Gatsby is, it is exactly what it is, and I can't wait to see people give Gatsby a happier ending or even a darker one, but that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay as close as I could, because there is a lot of fun in that. I'm actually using some lines from the original text just to play with, and because Fitzgerald is as good as he is, there's so much fun stuff there to play with.
0: I noticed a couple of those and had that thrill of it's even more than the thrill of like a great cover song it's the great interpolation it's the great mashup it's that moment of like
1: oh it's the pleasure of recognition
0: yeah so you've said the word joy a couple of times your joy on the page is evident on every single page even when things are very dark and it it comes through to the reader and it, in an infectious way there really is a buoyancy and a and a, oh yeah cool <laughs> i got to keep reading That's a tough thing to pull off no matter what you're doing, but particularly with a book that has some really heavy, dark stuff in it. How did you strike that balance?
1: (laughs) Because I was having fun. I'm, you know, I'm a, I mean, obviously this book is fan fiction. I'm a fan fiction writer from way back. It's got to be fun. And I think there's a certain amount of slightly sadistic glee where you know that something is going to get a reaction from someone and that's fun. And even if it's the reaction where they're like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that to me. It's still kind of fun. Would you talk a little bit more
0: about your history in fan fiction and how you brought, how you brought that to this?
1: My history in fan fiction goes back to before I knew what fan fiction was. So, you know, I was a little kid, and there are stories in my family about the fact that before I could read, I loved books. I loved the object. I wanted to play with them. I wanted to gently stroke them, which can't have really been a, a settling thing for my parents. It's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> doing? Like, I don't know. So, my first attempts were like trying to make books because as a child, I was like, this is how books happen, right? And, you know, it's tape and staples and Newspaper and stuff like that, and then I realized there were things inside the books, and I was just a lost cause entirely. So you know, I was doing what essentially was fan fiction of like the American Girl stories, the Berenstain Bears, and you know, I was I'm I'm going to be turning forty this year, so I didn't really get the internet until I was in high school, early college, and then suddenly there were all these people also doing it, and then it took like another like ten years before I was quite brave enough to hop in. I mean, at that point, I was already one of my side gigs was ghostwriter, so you know, I was definitely writing the whole time but suddenly I was sort of infected with once again it's it's love the best fan fiction writers I know are all given or, or have all nurtured a deep love of their canon material even if it's a love that's born of rage. because you can love a thing and you can be very angry with it and then it becomes something like almost a duty to improve upon it or to offer people an, an alternative so uh, my history of fanfic is inherently a positive experience and I love fan fiction for just what it is there's a lot of talk about well you know it prepares you to be a real writer and and that's bullshit fan fiction writers they're absolutely real writers they're just writing in another genre people can't necessarily appreciate every genre but it it is still work and it is still love and it is still worthy of a great deal of respect and consideration
0: i really like claiming fan fiction as another genre i find myself thinking about genre a lot as we've been building this show and you're so right everybody kind of has their one traditional genre that they look down their noses <laughs> at, whether that's science fiction, fantasy, or romance, or westerns. And it's all born out of a place of insecurity about what that thing does and a feeling like, oh, I don't, I can't
1: approach this. And it's, it's right down to a matter of taste. It becomes taste and it becomes a matter of class. I've seen plenty of people have terrible things to say about science fiction and fantasy from the litfic world. And I've seen it go right back. And at the end of the day, it's just, we want stories. I think that one of the proposed names for human was it homo Naran's uh, storytelling man isn't that great oh wow and yeah! it's we're built of stories and the you know the first story is please don't touch that or sharp hot that's a good story you know and and we have to tell each other these things and it's so inherent and it's so beautiful and sometimes i all i want is the story of okay how do you make these muffins happen you know but it's okay
0: so one of my absolute favorite things about this book and the way that i keep recommending it to everybody is that it is just So full of delightful inventiveness. The little things that you are throwing in around the corners of the world. Like demoniac. Like a uh, speakeasy in an abandoned subway station. Like people painting one nail black, which I have done uh, after a fountain pen exploded (laughs) on my hand this morning. And it does. It makes me feel a little bit like, I don't know, maybe I did make a deal with the devil this weekend. You'll never know. All of these little things, and so many of, the best part about so many of them is you write something on the page, and then you maybe never mention it again, or you mention it like twice, but it has stuck in my mind, and my imagination has run wild, being like, what else is going on in that bar? If this bar's here, are there other bars? What was it like getting to sort of create this fantastical 20s New York, and, and you know, was there, was there more? Are there things on the cutting room floor that you're like, ah, I wish I had gotten this in? <laughs>
1: Yes, there, were, there was a ghost tour. There was like a literal ghost tour to see real ghosts. And uh, Diana, my agent, would like me to stop bringing this up. She's like, people are going to think that I was so mean to you. And I'm like, you weren't. But I miss those ghosts, Diana. I really miss them. <laughs> what it comes right down to is the fact that's the way the real world is. There's so much stuff. And the minute you start taking a close look, you just open up so much history. Like I was waiting for the bus, and I was looking at the windows of a pub that I'd walked by plenty of times. And I was looking at them, and I'm like, huh, what's going on with these windows? And it turns out that there's a very old-fashioned set of windows. The panes are only about six by six, and there is a spin to the glass. Like every single pane has a circle in the center of it. And I went home and I looked at that up. It turns out it's probably well over hundred years old. It's something called bullseye glass, which is the way they used to make glass is they would put a large gather of glass at the end of a pipe and then they would spin it. And then they would and so basically they spin out this large plate that they then cut into panes, and the, the nicer panes were at the edge where the thin transparent glass is. And the cheapest glass was a center, which is the bullseye where the punty hits the glass. So you could get these these small, thick, transparent, but still very bad quality glass for cheap, and that's what that window is. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. And I went into like this dive of uh, Milwaukee architectural history. And I mean, that's not not any different from saying this place used to be a speakeasy. So where do these other speakeasies come from? It's just real life, you know. as once you see, start pulling threads, it's like there's there's plenty of places for magic and demons to be hiding. It's great. That is so much how
0: I want to see the world. And I know I can't be the only one. That can be a struggle sometimes.
1: It's hard. It's effort, especially as we grow up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the many, many, many
0: great things about a book like this is that it does encourage you to reframe how you're looking at the world. And I think, I mean... I don't know, this isn't even a question that's just such a gift
1: <laughs> every now and then when I'm having a bad day I, I make it a point to okay I'm leaving my house and I'm going to go out and find something to be delighted with and sometimes it's it's watching a, a pigeon just step on a sparrow which okay that wasn't it's, it's not really full <laughs> of wonder but I'm like oh my god he's like four times the size of that sparrow this is fantastic <laughs> it doesn't always come from a great place sometimes it's just watching a, a sparrow get stepped on by a larger bird but you know, it's still great it, it's still I'm like yes that is in fact a source of wonder for me today. So right
0: now, there are a lot of conversations about, is this going to be our Roaring Twenties? Are we going to have another Roaring Twenties? And I couldn't help but thinking about that as I was reading this book. You know, Gatsby is one of the great stories of the Roaring Twenties. Maybe it's just because of the world that we've lived in, the world that I've grown up in. There's a way that you both represent the magic and the joy of an ebullient society being like. Fuck it, let's go for it. Let us have fun for once. Life is short. But you really, in a way that I, certainly when I read Gatsby, I haven't, haven't read Gatsby since I was in high school. The last time I encountered it was when I saw Gatsby at the public theater. And that was six, seven years ago. So it's been a minute. But I, I recall it as having a melancholy that was more of a personal melancholy than a societal melancholy. And your book, I feel like it certainly has plenty of the personal melancholy, but there is... This societal sense that, you know, something is something is rotten. And you layer that in a little bit with the Manchester Act hanging over everything. How much were you thinking, I guess, about the present as you were writing this? Or were, you know, is it one of those happy happenstances that you look back at it and you're like, oh, it turns out I was thinking about this too.
1: You don't. I think when it comes down to history, you don't want to be right too often. It's what's that line? You never want to be too interesting to doctors or historians, and it has been a bad <laughs> year for any of that, right? Right. What it comes down to, I think, on a deeply personal level, is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, and. Whether we're going into the 1920s, I think it's fair. We're going into a 1920s. However, there's also the fact that the 1920s, as they were, historically, were a very dark time. I mean, one thing I I wanted to take care to point out was that Jordan, as an Asian-American Women cannot vote. Daisy's only had the right to vote for two years. And these are things that we don't necessarily get because that's the water that Fitzgerald himself is swimming on. He has no reason to point out that women have only had the vote for two years. One of the interesting things that I discovered while I was writing the book was what the Twilight Sleep was. Are, are you familiar with that part? It was, um, it's actually something that's in the original book. And Daisy actually, by name, mentions the Twilight Sleep. It's a reproductive process where women going into labor are given scopolamine, which is powerful, powerful stuff. And they're basically knocked out for, the whole, for their whole labor. And the idea was it was very modern. It was very scientific. It's a way to give birth without any pain at all. You go to sleep and you have a baby. You have a beautiful little baby in your arms when you wake up. The problem was this it wasn't a process that actually prevented pain. It prevents awareness of pain, which is not the same thing. So, you know, to quote a very famous book, The Body Does Keep the Score. And afterwards, especially in the United States, where the process was not actually created, but imitated and sometimes imitated very badly, women would start to have these terrible flashbacks of pain of being because um, during the process, while they were knocked out, they were blindfolded and they were tied down so they couldn't hurt themselves as they thrashed. And so these women would get these terrible nightmares about being tied down, being blindfolded, being in great pain, and no one coming to help them, no one paying any attention to them. That was such a horror show for me when I went went and looked it up, because, you know, I mean, it's, it's a single line in the original novel, and I had no idea what it was, so I thought, okay, better go check on that. And then the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, Daisy is, I think, maybe 24 at most. She's very young, and, you know, she didn't have Pammy when she was older than 21, 22. And for all of Daisy's fault, and Daisy is cruel, and I like to think I make the point Daisy is dangerous, that is still a hell of a thing for someone at the age of 21 to go through. So, I mean, the darkness was there. It was just, it's harder for us to see in the original. And the darkness is still with us. And I think it's um, both a privilege and a responsibility to say, hey, look at this. Isn't this horrible? The more I look at scopalamine, I'm like, wow, you gave that to a pregnant woman. That's a thing you did?
0: Yeah. I find myself sort of just continually being shocked by how horrible we've all been to each other for so long. That's kind of a simplistic way to say it or to think about it. But even the ways like all of all of the relationships in this book have a little bit of that on a small scale level too. Like you said earlier that you can you can love something and be furious with it. There's a lot of that between everybody in this book in a way that to your point about Gatsby is one of those great high school books, because it's just a lot of people having a lot of emotions. Mm -hmm. But here, these emotions really feel like the more complex, more complicated emotions that I certainly was having. That thing of like, yeah, I'm into this person, but like, I can't, why, what's, why do I keep being drawn to this person? Why is this friend who treats me terribly? Why will I still go more or less to the edge of hell and back for them. and I think there's something really wonderful and a, a kindness almost from you as an author to put those things into, into slightly more concrete terms, like characters more or less literally going to the edge of hell. Did those emotions ever threaten to capsize you while you were writing? or did they ever threaten to run away with the book? It just it feels like a lot, you know, like grabbing lightning.
1: I think what it comes down to it is part of, I, I will say that part of The Chosen the Beautiful comes from one of my understandings of love, which is that love is an emotion and it is it is just an emotion, but it can, you can also read it as an act. If you separate the emotion from the act, I think you're getting something somewhere close to being a much safer and saner human being. The idea that someone can love you and still do terrible things to you, or someone can do what look like very loving things to you, but which come from a very, very dark place. And I think that once you have that sort of binomial model, you start to understand the characters of the chosen and the beautiful a little better. What do they love, but then how do they show it? Or what looks like love, but really isn't? I think that the question of Gatsby's affection for Daisy and vice versa, that's one that started, I'm pretty sure, as soon as The Great Gatsby was published. What is it that he feels for her? And is it real? And is it love? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because whatever the actions occurred there, they can't cover enough to make it worthwhile for Daisy. They they can't cover enough to change who she is or to even find like a livable medium i think that the question of love is it's one that has to be forgiven in some cases especially in the world we live in people do terrible things for love and while you may forgive it you should really make it a point to prevent them from being able to hurt you or the people you care about and that's what jordan is figuring out at the end i think i want to go back a little
0: bit and talk about jordan for a second why jordan where did, like where did
1: that spark, that initial spark, come from? Being a queer girl who saw Jordan and who saw Jordan and recognized something actually. Um, Jordan is described in the original novel um, as as oddly singular. She is a girl with an androgynous name. She is a girl who plays sports. Whether or not she is meant to be such in the 1920s, Jordan stands apart in a way that I think queer people recognize and respond to. I knew that when I started writing this, there were a lot of queer women who said, yes, yes, I thought she was queer. And I'm like, okay, I'm on to something. There's absolutely something happening here. And some of it is the fact that, you know, if The Great Gatsby has Nick, Nick's obvious foil in the whole hellish quad there is is going to be Jordan. And there's also the fact that Jordan in the original book doesn't make sense. I mean, okay, think about it. She's obviously having all these quiet secret talks and conversations with Gatsby because she had to be propelled to tell Nick and tell Daisy about it. But what kind of friend lets your best friend walk into a meeting with something like Gatsby and doesn't warn her. She's either stone cold evil, or she and Daisy have something else going on that they're not telling. They're not telling Nick about, and therefore Nick doesn't know. So, I mean, someone was wanting to unpick that. I have uh, a copy of The Great Gatsby, and it's just studded full of post-it notes about where Jordan shows up and where she goes during some of these scenes because uh, Fitzgerald he's he's very meticulous. He knows where all of his characters are at any given point, point. and you know sometimes Jordan walks off. And I'm like, where did you just go? What are you doing? So, I mean, part of it is taking that apart as
0: well i never would have thought about the ways in which jordan and gatsby in particular too there's there's a kindred thing between them in a very dark strange way that i really it tickled me to see that drawn out and to see to see those conversations that yeah you're talking like okay, so she clearly talked to this guy and then this whole th- other thing happens. Right,
1: right. But but why? And why would she do that? <laughs> why would you do that to someone who you say is your friend? And I mean, I've had that kind of friend before, but I don't know if that was quite, quite what Jordan was meant to do. And some of it, honestly, is the fact that I would, I mean... Nick is, you know, he's he's an unreliable he, he's he's our, he's an unreliable narrator. He's our first unreliable narrator. So many of us run into, you know, and as I say, you you never really forget your first. <laughs> and he is. And he has that wonderfully self-congratulatory line about, I am one of the few honest people I know. Uh-huh. And in the original book, he's a cheater. Did I, I keep running into people who never noticed that. And I'm like, you know, he has this girl in Minnesota he's not talking to, and there's that girl in Jersey City. And, yeah. and it's so fast that so many people never notice it. And I'm like, I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to talk about who you are, man, and, and how you feel about women. Let's start there.
0: Another question about sort of the, the joyful gleeful busyness of this world. Do you ever, do you ever want to go back?
1: I'm probably writing a follow-up novella to the chosen, and the beautiful that will be released in a while that actually follows up with Nick after the events of the chosen, and the beautiful. And if it tells you anything about what's going to happen, the the working title is don't sleep with the dead.
0: Whoa. Isn't it really cool. Hell yeah. I'm sold. Uh, I'll be the Scott Pilgrim sitting by the door. <laughs> waiting for something that i've just heard about
1: oh thank you i i I think it's going to be a lot of fun and i mean i am i'm pretty hard on nick i think when it comes down to uh what i did in the chosen beautiful i mean there's the big there's the big spoiler at the end of course but i mean i think some of my feelings about nick come through pretty clearly in jordan in terms of how i feel about well let's say the cheating and honestly the snobbishness and and the self-congratulatory behavior which i think is I think i do find a little bit forgivable when i realize everything he's been through like i looked up nick's regiment when i was doing the research for the novel that's a real regiment that he's in as well a part of the group that was the first to hit european soil from america and that's something that i think fitzgerald put in knowing that people who read it would say, oh nick's a war hero but i don't think that's something that we got in high school when we were taking it apart
0: yeah oh absolutely how weird to look at that book and realize that when it came out that was present tense for people, mm-hmm. and then to realize how much it faded so that we could read it and be like, oh, okay, he fought in the war, great. Without that context of like, he was one of the first. People,
1: he would. I mean, Nick. Um, that's that's so strange to me. And the idea of bringing it, bringing it forward to a place where we can recognize the uh, both Nick's P- Nick's possible PTSD, uh, Gatsby's literally meteoric rise to to power after in the in the shambles of it. Yeah, no, it, it's. Did you know that the Gats, that the Great Gatsby, was actually a very poor seller when it first came out? It was. Yeah. Um, when Fitzgerald himself died at the age of forty-four, there were still first editions sitting in the public. Publishers' in the publisher's warehouse, which is you know every writer's nightmare. It's my nightmare, but no, it was it was a poor seller. People didn't quite know what to make of it. Some people thought it was a crime novel, which was fascinating. Wow. Um, and so it just sort of languished in obscurity and uh, straight through the '30s because in the '30s no one wanted to read that. Everyone is poor. Everyone is hungry. We don't really want to read stories about rich people behaving badly. It actually, and um, I owe a great deal, uh, a great deal of thanks to Maureen Corrigan who wrote. So we read on, which is where I got a lot of this this fun trivia and historical background, The Great Gatsby was selected for a program which was designed to get paperbacks in the hands of American troops in World War II. Paperbacks were new technology, and The Great Gatsby is short, it's punchy, it's a fun read, and by the 1940s, it's nostalgic. And so it was put in the hands of U.S. servicemen from the European theater to the Pacific theater and they read it and they brought it home and they became the next generation's worth of English teachers. That is that is the making of an, of an American classic. It, it's, it's luck. It is a bit of a tragedy because the, the writer didn't get to live to see that full potential. But that has given me a very interesting look at what becomes canon.
0: So let's go way, way, way back in time, to China, circa 1345 by the Gregorian calendars reckoning, when a young former monk rose to become the founder of the Ming Dynasty. Except this time, it's going to happen slightly different from how it did in our history. Shelley Parker Chan is an Australian by way of Malaysia and New Zealand. She's a 2017 Tip Tree Fellow and spent nearly a decade working as a diplomat and international development advisor in Southeast Asia before turning to writing. She currently lives in Melbourne, Australia, and to get things started, I asked her not only to describe the plot of her new book, She Who Became the Sun, but also, well, to give me a little bit of a history lesson.
2: So, it is set in 14th century China, when historically the Mongols are ruling China, and this peasant guy came along, he absolutely didn't care about the fate of the Chinese people being crushed on the Mongols. He just had this intense ambition. He was one of those guys who woke up and was like, you know what, I am destined to be great. And he made himself great. He was a monk. He became a rebel commander. He built himself an army and he kicked the Mongols out of China And he made himself the emperor, which is uh, one of the most astronomical rises in human history. And I thought, you know, it might be really interesting to see how this ultimate patriarch of the Chinese system might look if his story was that he wasn't a man. How's that going to subvert empire? How's that going to break the foundations of the patriarchal state? I always say, don't learn history from this book <laughs> because this is, a, this is like my radical subversion of history. So I feel really bad when people come to me and like, oh, I learned so much about the Ming dynasty. And I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> um, it didn't go that way. Now I come from, I'm going to say it, I come from a fanfic background and my brain really works in the what if way. So I find it really interesting to think about things that have happened and just be like, oh, what if? Um, also, because I'm a queer, I didn't see a lot of queer representation. So I'm usually like, what if that person was actually gay? So I was always looking for something I could never find in the historical record. And that's when you start to play with stories and be like, well, I'm just going to make it the way I want it to be and see how it works out from there. It didn't start out as a story of this particular emperor. I was just, I'm really into monks, you know, which is a weird thing to say. And I apologize to the monks that I have actually known. They're all wonderful people, Um, some very dedicated nuns. But I just like the idea of the, you know, removing yourself from the world in pursuit of faith. But then I really like the idea of a bad monk, like someone who actually can't do that and I came across the idea of this emperor who actually used to be a monk very briefly in his youth. And I just became obsessed with the idea of how can someone, you know, who has been a monk, which professes, you know, non-attachment to the world, could also possess this incredible ambition and turn out to be the most tyrannical man of all time. And, you know, an emperor is the the ultimate father of the Confucian world system. And I was just like, you know, screw you, Confucius. You have built this state that we all suffer under. Now I want to twist that and make someone who's not a man have that position of ultimate male power. So I wrote this book out of spite. There you go.
0: There is a lot of different kinds of anger in this book. What can turn somebody who at one point in their lives was dedicated to giving everything up and sort of a selfless unattachment to the world turn into somebody who wants everything, who wants to be on top of the world? And I I mean, I only just, as you were saying that, started thinking about it. But the ways in which all of these characters have these desires, these pulls, these wants, or these these not wants that are fueling them in very passionate ways, I guess is maybe a better way to say it than than... Angry ways. What was it like putting yourself in the mind of these characters who so rapaciously want?
2: I think for my main character, Ju Yuan Zhang, it was extremely hard to build that character. I always think there's like this fundamental mystery at the core of. Ordinary people who have such extraordinary desires. Like I myself as an ordinary person find it like almost impossible to comprehend. You know, how do you, how, how are you born just an ordinary peasant who has never seen outside of like a tiny little village and have, you know, ambition for what you've never seen before? How do you have a desire that large? And this is not just for the character that I built, but it's for the historical person as well. Like how, how could you be this guy, you know, and dream of, have it, of being literally at the top of the world? And I don't think I can solve that. And sometimes I don't think you need to solve that. Sometimes it is like a a mystery. And I think that's often why when we think back to figures like Alexander the Great in those fantastic books by Mary Renault, you know, you sort of reach for the mythic explanations. You reach for like God or fate in the sense of the Greek heroes, you know, they have a destiny. Because it is sort of inexplicable and to reduce it to pure, simple psychological terms, I think takes away a lot of like the grandeur of it. So for that character, I could never fully distill it down. But at the same time, she does have some... I think more relatable things that drive her like fear and having been told her entire life that she's worthless and useless and a girl. Like these things come from a fairly relatable place, I believe, in a contemporary society. Because when we write about the past... We're writing about the now. I am not pretending to write about gender dynamics in 14th century China. I am actually writing a story about, you know, our current day and what it's like to be a variety of marginalized identities. And some of the Ara characters were really easy to write because they're basically just aspects of me. Uh, you know, all authors say well, many authors, like their characters are just different slices of themselves running around in a in a universe. (laughs) And so, yeah, most of the characters are a part of me, but actually probably not the protagonist, uh, Jew. She's not. It's funny to hear you,
0: I guess, own up to putting yourself into this book so much because there's also this very wry narratorial voice that crops up every once in a while. And I found myself so delighted by it because you and I have never met. This was the first piece of your fiction that I had read. And yet I felt like in the course of delivering this epic story, which lands just like any good epic story should, I also had these occasional moments of feeling like you or some narrator was present over my shoulder a little bit. Not pulling me out of the narrative, but just being able to remark every once in a while. I guess I guess I want to know a little bit more about the writing and and putting together these different points of view, both the characters and then sort of the larger narratorial one.
2: Ah, you're talking about craft, and I don't think about craft very much. Like I, I've never done an MFA or any of that. So I came into writing a book, just being like, all right, I'll, I'll write this book. Sure, fine. Uh, and realized I didn't know what I was doing and just kind of blindly forged ahead on uh, belief uh, and naivety and ignorance. And somehow a book came out of that process. But I have some friends who think so deeply about craft and they're very conscious of the effects they're trying to evoke on the page. And sadly, I'm not one of those people. Uh, I usually just get there through trial and error. And I think the effect of having a narratorial voice, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Like, I'm glad you liked it. I was actually originally aiming for an omniscient um, point of view and maybe that's the traces of that that linger in this story, even though now it is in a tight third um, on the sort of four main points of view, and I'd initially tried to go for omniscient because that is the the mode in which a lot of the Chinese classics are told. You do sit back a little, and that is maybe one of the best voices I think for observing tragedy, um, and because mm. you get the deep sense of irony. You're the narrator who sort of he knows how history tends to unfold, and you're seeing these individual lives play out on this broad tapestry, but you do have that greater sense of you know, sort of a meta-awareness of how these these tales unfold. And I almost think of it like, you know, you're, you're God and you're looking at the lives of these little individual humans and you know that in the Chinese mythology, people are reincarnated. So you sort of, you see this unspooling tapestry or unrolled scroll and they're, you know, their lives occupy a little dotted line and then they vanish for a bit and they come back. And you can sort of see the pat- the bigger patterns that they play out. And that's the sense you get when you read the Chinese classics, I think. That's what I was aiming for. And also there is an amazing author, Dorothy Dunnett, uh, who writes these uh, spectacular historical action-adventure intrigue uh, series that I was also reading at the time. And she does an amazing omniscient. But it is an extremely hard thing to pull off. And it's also not common these days. So in the end, I went down to tight third. And I think that was better for the emotional side of the book. That really let me sink into the the deep hyper-emotionality of, of like the various characters. So I think it suited it in the end. I didn't realize I was a discovery writer. Well, I think we all must be to some degree as we draft and redraft mm-hmm. and revise. So getting it right the first time is not the be-all and end-all, you know? And I think I, I also didn't know that. I just wrote instinctively. I wrote, like, you and I, we read obsessively. And I think of have internalized story structures just from reading. So, you know, just mm-hmm. whack it down on the page. And I, I love when I hear people say, you know, don't worry about the first draft. It's going to be garbage. You know, just write down, <laughs> you know, uh, your, your true feelings as much as you can in the approximate shape of a story. And then you'll discover new things each time you go through as you revise. I found that very comforting.
0: Yeah. Now I kind of want to know, as you were working this over from draft to draft to draft, how tightly did you feel that you had to stick to the truth of history? Or did you feel like you had to stick to the truth of history?
2: At first, I did feel like I had to replicate events exactly as they happened. And I kind of wrote myself into a corner because the story I was trying to tell about individual people and their relationships was operating at a different timescale to the timescale of the events of history. So Zhu Yuanzhang, the historical guy, uh, rose to power over about 30 years. Now He was like middle-aged man by the time he became emperor, although he then lived a very long time afterwards. So, but I'm like telling a story about the, the human heart, you know, individual people, <laughs> the, the quest for identity, you know, like it operates in a different timescale. Um, uh, there are people who write those multi-generational sagas, but I'm not one of them. I'm like, ah, if you write a romance, it should kind of be over a couple of years, three years max. Or, you know, a coming of age story. You know, people come of age at a certain time in their lives. We don't want to drag it out for 20 years. So I did eventually, for the sake of bringing out the themes I want to bring out, I did compress a lot of events and I have changed the course of history, especially in book two. It does not follow the order of emperors. I did follow the path of history in terms of like some of the main events. And actually in a way that's kind of cheating. Like if it was a true Mm -hmm. alt history, you know, that branching off when the historical male figure died and someone like his sister takes his place, you would think that would actually branch it further, right? They wouldn't follow the exact same path of events. But we'll just hand wave that you know, <laughs> and, and step her through those things and then just see how her gender alters those, those events as they unplay. I think there's, there's plenty to work with there in terms of subverting.
0: Another subversion of history that I was both so admiring of how sparing you were with it, and also I desperately wanted so much more of it, was the the use of the supernatural in this book particularly the physical manifestation of the mandate of heaven. But then also the ghosts who appear in this book who are absolutely terrifying in a like scarier than some horror novels that I've read, but they, they show up in such a small, very pointed way. And I'm curious about how and and why you did these magical elements in the way that you did.
2: Mm, There's a very prosaic uh, explanation for this, which is uh, I wish I had it all grandly planned out from the beginning. No, uh, She Who Became the Sun was written as a historical palace drama. There's this whole genre of Chinese TV shows, the palace drama, the intrigue, you know, when there's a lot of backstabbing and people running around plotting against each other. It fits squarely into that genre and it contains no magic It is, uh, it often plays with historical events in the same way that my book plays with historical events, but there's no supernatural element. So that's what I wrote. And then came to the submission process and. My agent and I went out to a bunch of general fiction imprints and we went out to the SFF imprints. And like in my heart, I'm a spec fic writer. Uh, You know, as I said, I come out of the fanfic world. Almost all the stories we write, a large percentage of them come from science fiction and fantasy media. So I was quite used to operating in that space. So in my heart, it feels like a fantasy. I feel like I imbued it with a sort of fantasy spirit But it didn't have any magic. And this greatly confused everyone who read it. They were like, what the hell is this book? You know, it feels like a farm boy's rise to, you know, become king. It feels like a fantasy, but there is no magic. It's not historically accurate. All the general fiction imprints were like, whoa, we don't want this. You know, it's just not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not historical fiction as we know it. I'm like, Fair enough. And the SFF people liked it, but they were like, we're going to find this really hard to sell because it, it doesn't have magic or cool weapons or supernatural animals or whatever. So I spoke to a few imprints and some people suggested different things. Some were like, let's make it a secondary world. And I did not want to make it a secondary world because I really feel like the thrust of this story is about subverting a real person. Like the this guy who occupies a very significant place in Chinese history as the ultimate male journey of becoming, you know, I wanted to twist that. So I feel it didn't work if it was just a secondary world with a made up guy. It's not as powerful. So the other option was add magic. And like, oh, you know, I've already got this fully finished book. How do you add magic without breaking the story? Because it raises the question, oh, if there's magic in this world, why don't you use it to solve X, Y, or Z? Or, you know, wouldn't it change events in particular ways? So I was really like, what is the least amount of magic I can add to this story that does not affect a single thing within it? So that is why. Uh, some people are disappointed they're like oh it's not even like fantasy at all the magic doesn't do anything I'm like sorry you are correct the magic does not do anything it is merely indicative of people's potentials and it like is demonstrated on page in a certain way Ah, so the ghosts was just really making me make people's existing beliefs literal on the page people in the first draft already believed in the ghosts of their ancestors hungry ghosts um they believed in fate they believed in reincarnation and all of that it was just making it real so that's how it came to be
0: i really like that i I had been thinking as i was reading it and i had the note written down and i didn't i didn't know how to ask the question without it i don't know seeming to my mind almost rude to be like what genre do you think this book is because i was very i was pleasantly surprised but this is a show, the original genesis of having these conversations was to continue to help bust down the doors of genre and and show the ways in which, you know, anything can be anything we say it is a little bit. And I really, I like the fact that this book challenges your perception of, okay, it's coming out from Tor. It must be science fiction, fantasy, speculative in some way. And it is. It feels so much like it stands alongside all of the other books on the Tor list and like it is unique which i think is just it's a really cool exciting moment to sort of as a reader read something and be like well this is basically unclassifiable because it's a bunch of different things
2: it must be something new very cool you know (laughs) yeah i mean i'm all on board with that breaking down the barriers of genre i i love it let's let's do it more Uh, i think Authors in general are quite frustrated by this pigeonholing of, you know, this is what your fantasy book must be. This is what your YA book must be. You know, we just want to tell a great story. And like, let's borrow from everywhere. You know, some of my favorite books are crime novels with a little hint of speculative or, you know, why not mash together horror and romance or fantasy and literary, you know? I think it's just as creators are looking outside of the US and the Anglophone world, Um, I think we'll see more interesting influences on the the shape of the books that we tell. Like, for instance, my book was very much influenced by Chinese TV dramas, which have their own specific genres as well. Had mine been a Chinese TV show, I think people have instantly understood, oh, it exactly fits in, like, you know, uh, a category, an existing category of thing. It is not new or fresh, let's be real. It is just, it's, well, maybe it's a gay version. So that's the newness of one of those existing shows. But bring it to the US and people are like, oh, this is new and exciting. No, I think this is the cultural cross-pollination and I'm really excited to see it's happening a lot these days.
0: Outside of your writer life, you have worked as a diplomat and there's we're talking about palace intrigue and plotting and people moving pieces around in the background trying to vie for power. But there's a, a line relatively late in the book Without sweet words to believe in, who's going to go out into a rain of arrows? And I thought that that was such an eloquent, concise defense of the power of language and of writing and and of the reasons, one of the reasons that we as human beings do this. When I then learned that you have worked on that side of the world, I found myself wondering how you feel about that. Is is that one of those moments of you on the page or is that one of those moments where you on planet Earth today are like, eh, it's a bit more complicated than that?
2: Yeah, so I did work in this field and I think working in this field was what made me want to write a book that was in fact almost entirely escapist from the realities mm-hmm. of politics. I wrote a escapist action adventure. Let's be real, it does not go into the deep and complex and fraught and knotty work of revolution and how it does take 30 years and involves a rotating cast of several hundreds of people. And it's just too complex to be cathartically satisfying in the way that I like. I wanted a book that you could just throw yourself into and just be like, hell yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with telling that kind of story. And I had totally burnt out on politics. So I did work in a country that was very newly independent. And, you know, you get to know the cast of characters that have worked in this very small environment. They were the the rebels, the the fight, independence fighters, and they had come into positions of power. They were now in the prime ministers and the presidents, and. Uh... I just really became very frustrated by seeing how their enormous egos and their little interpersonal squabbles and grudges persisted into this newly very fragile democratic state to the point where the state then fell down again while I was there and uh, into a state of terrible crisis. And you're like, this is supposed to be the happy ending. You know, you became independent and it's just all squabbles and bitterness and pettiness. Well, maybe some of that came across in She Who Became the Son. But yeah, it's not a story that's really concerned with the reality of battle, especially. You'll notice all the battles are carefully hand-waved away off page uh, because it's it's not really what I'm interested in exploring. And it is also not going to be interested in exploring what it's like to create a new state. Like this is a a one and not a one and done. This is like a, a single story from peasant to king and then we stop at king, basically. I guess my work informed it in that way. Like I'm sick of politics. Sometimes we just want fun.
0: So our last stop today is Baltimore, Maryland. I've been thinking about who gets to tell stories and what stories are getting told. And when I think about that, I think about the time that I spent working in theater. And I think about one person in particular, my dear friend and my old boss, Stephanie Ibarra, who is now the artistic director of Baltimore Center Stage. Stephanie is a brilliant producer and a tireless advocate for artists, specifically underrepresented artists. I thought it would be fun after having spent years with Stephanie toiling in the background of various Shakespeare productions to just talk to her about what it means to be in charge, whose stories she wants to tell, and how she is interpreting this idea of the classics.
3: Well, when I think about the the sort of future of storytelling, it feels correct to do some amount of reaching back. You know, that feels right. But I think the interrogation of canonical works or questioning the assumptions about where our stories are rooted, that feels like objectively good for our collective, you know, humanity. But also it feels like any one of us who is in the business of storytelling, regardless of the medium, it feels like it, it can and should be informing the way we move forward, if only to understand where we don't wanna go back to. I gotta say, like especially in this new-ish role of artistic director, I feel like that word, classic, it has been weaponized uh, repeatedly and used against me to illustrate a thing that I'm doing wrong, as in if I have audiences and stakeholders and board members and folks who are really invested in theater and my specific theater at Baltimore Center Stage. And I I often now put the classics in air quotes because it feels like an amorphous, sort of a completely subjective word. And frankly, it feels incredibly coded too. So I I spend more time than I want to actually thinking about what even lives inside of that word classic and how to tease it out, hold on to what's good about it and actually push against or do away with the status quo that is holding us back. I want the stories that challenge all of the narrative assumptions about women of color in particular. And so I'm here for any, any retelling um, and reframing of, of how women move through the world. I don't think we've gotten a fair shake in, in, our, uh, in our canon, let's just say.
0: Interrogating the canon feels in some ways like the best way any of us can spend the rest of our reading lives. We get to build it new every time we pick up a book, every time we press something that we loved into the hands of our friends, every time a teacher says, yeah I know we're supposed to read this but what if we all read this instead? What are some of the books on your canon list? The canon that you're building for yourself? Feel free to Tweet me about it. Tell your friends. Put it on Goodreads. Whatever you do, we'll be back in two weeks. Happy reading. I'll see you soon. This has been Tor Presents Voyage Into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Ancioni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at Lithub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks.